All right, welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Shalom. I'm glad we're still able to have folks learning more about Second Kings, and um, we get to jump in and start learning about the prophet Elisha. That's right. So we're covering uh, Second Kings 2 through 7, and our key questions, of course, are how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? So context, we just finished with Elijah, right? Yes. Well, we, actually, no, we still have Elijah. So let me just give you a quick overview of sure. the whole book of Second Kings. Um, chapters one and two is still Elijah. Yep. So we've got a little bit more on Elijah. And then chapters two through 13 is Elisha, mm-hmm. his predecessor. And then the next four chapters, 14 through 18, are talking about the fall of the northern tribes to the Assyrians. And we call it them the lost 10 tribes, but really they're taken up in... Um, um, to the to the land of Assyria, and and just like the next um, six chapters, nineteen through twenty five, talk about the fall of the southern tribes as they're taken captive into Babylon. Um, so th- the end of this very very long book, starting with Samuel to Kings, as I talked about before, it was all one book initially before the Greek Septuagint version that chopped it into four books. Um, so the history comes to an end. So we started with the calling of David, and it ends with the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian captivity. So that's where we're so going. So now but, we're hitting Book of Mormon but today times, right? We're just, yeah, yeah next teams, week. Yeah. Next, next week we'll week. be into Book of Mormon times. Yep. Um, but this week, um, this these first seven chapters of Kings um, have the main character as Elijah and Elisha. And I see, again, such. I'm glad you reminded us to look deeper for types of Christ, because in some of these miracles, it's so exciting just to read the storyline that I forget to look deeper into types of Christ and how can this bring me closer to the Savior and how can I better understand these chapters through looking at the Restoration. And these chapters really are packed with information from the restoration. So it's going to be, it's going to be terrific. Let's, let's dive in. And unless you want to talk about any of the main characters, I think everybody knows the main characters from last yeah, week. Yeah, from, from last week. But uh, just, so at the end of First Kings, which you, you mentioned from before is really just First Kings and Second Kings are really the same thing, just a different scroll, uh-huh. right? So Elijah had prophesied the end of Ahab and Jezebel. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so he prophesies that they are going to be licked up by the dogs. Right. And didn't make them very happy. He didn't make them happy, but they have um, their posterity continues on, much to my sorrow, uh, as for two more generations. Uh, I'm sure the Israelites sorrow much more than mine. <laughs> hmm. So um, now, so now we have chapter one, right? Yeah. So first or second Kings, um, chapter one, we have this beautiful time with both prophets still working together. And I see this, um, you know, Elijah is just tutoring and mentoring all these sons of the prophets and um, building them up right before he leaves. And I'm so glad that his life was not taken when he wanted it, but that it was extended so that he could spread the good word and preach the gospel and more knees bowed. But it sounds like um, in chapter one, anyway, that Ahab is still alive. And or Ahab's son, excuse me, um, Ahazia, is still um, on the throne, but he's fallen. He's had an accident, and he wants to know what to do. And so he seeks a foreign, fake, 
false pagan god to know what to do. And Elijah intervenes again uh, with his servant. It's this, this, These chapters are filled with servants, aren't they? Yeah. they? A lot of good servant intervention, lots of thought on, on being a good servant. And he's... He, he comes up to him. Do you want to read? Um, I'm looking at chapter one, um, verse five. When the messenger turned back to him, um, he said, why are you turning back and go back and do what I told you to do? And Elijah has said, you know, he, he, you don't, is there not a God in Israel? This is um, verse three. Are you going to this false God because there's not a God in Israel? And when he shows up to the king, to King Ahazia, the servant says, um, I'm sorry, um, I was told that you aren't going to live. And I did never get to your God because this other God, this other prophet came and told me this. And, he, and the poor king says, look at, look at verse eight. Was he a hairy man, <laughs> girt with a girdle of leather about his loins? Right. He said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. You know, he recognizes him immediately as his arch enemy. And so this king sends 50 soldiers and a captain to take him down. And, um, you For know, one man, Elijah, no problem. He goes back to his old favorite. He pulls down fire from heaven <laughs> and they're gone. And the next group come and they're gone. And we finally have a humble one come the third time who honors the prophet, who is not there to destroy him, but says, you know, I, I respect you as a man of God. This is verse 13. He falls to his knees before Elijah and he says, please preserve my life. I believe that you are a, are a prophet of God. Please come. And an angel comes and says, okay, Elijah, you can go talk to the king and tell him the same thing you told the servant. He's not going to learn anything different from the prophet as he has the prophet's servant. I love that in our own lives. Sometimes people want to go talk to the prophet or get a blessing from an apostle. But it's, it's the faith of the individual and it's the messages from God. If you're going to receive personal revelation from the Lord, it's, 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 it's valid. I, I remember hearing a talk from Elder Bednar um, and this was, this is when I was in England and he came and gave a talk to all the youth and he gave this exact message, talk, exact message. And he's like, it's different because you think it's different because you don't see me taking out my trash like you do your state president. right? Mm -hmm, uh -huh. And, but I just remember paying special attention to that state conference where he was speaking and, you know, the spirit that was there when the bishop or even that, you know, 15 year old girl was speaking and there's messages the, the difference between Elder Bednar for me was the consistency, I would say, but the spirit was the same. The messages oh, were the beautiful. same. That's so beautiful. So I absolutely John. see that. Yeah. So King Ahazia um, is not going to recover from his fall through the, through the upstairs floor down or whatever. And um, another um, child of Ahab and, um, puts on the throne, Jehoram. Um, that's verse 17. And the chapter ends with um, that th those wicked sons there. But chapter two is one of our favorite chapters when Elijah is taken up into heaven. And geographically, you know, he, he goes all over the land. I mean, Elisha has to follow him for so long before he actually gets to the Jordan River where it's going to happen. But they stop at all these places. Everybody says, do you know what's going to happen? Do you know what's going to happen? He says, oh, yes, we're all I'm well aware of what's going to happen. Um, but uh, some of the beautiful symbols of this story, I think the story is very well known. 
But the idea that Elijah goes back to the mountain where Moses was translated is very powerful to me. He goes across the Jordan right where the children of Israel, it's called the place of the crossing or Bethabara. And um, it, it's referred to also by John the Baptist. place of baptism is in the same location, you know, the lowest part um, there, way, you know, 300, 400 feet below sea level. Um, and it's so symbolic of where Christ is baptized and then the entrance into the promised land and then the place where Moses is translated, Elijah is going to be translated. And um, we... What do we know about translated beings? I never met one. At least I don't think I have. <laughs> so I don't know very much. Well, I think that we probably uh, uh, have had ministering angels. I just don't know if we've yeah. had ministering angels who are translated beings because, uh, but they, they're they taken to some sort of a celestial state. Joseph Smith gave a wonderful sermon on this. I mean, it's in the history of the church or the Joseph Smith Papers Projects. And he says that Elijah was um, just like the people of Melchizedek and the people of Enoch. Um, are now living in a terrestrial environment, and they have not yet been resurrected. Um, they have just been translated, and they are ministering angels. So that's why I said I, I, I don't know if we've all seen one or not, because we've certainly had ministering angels. But the beauty of having a translated being is that he can still have the keys to pass on later. And so Moses and Elijah are able to come back to our Savior and Peter, James, and John um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're able to come back again with the keys in the Kirtland Temple. On that, I, we talked about it a little bit last week, but it, the fact that it, it it's Easter Sunday, but that first Sunday in April was also the second day of the bread, of the un, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the time when the the day before, the night before, the Jews had just opened their door for Elijah to come, and then he comes to Kirtland and restores those great keys of the sealing power that he held. And the sealing power, it, Joseph spoke on that as well. I mean, this is from, it's in all the great places, the history of the church and um, the Joseph Smith papers, the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. He taught that Elijah um, was the last one to have the keys that he could pass on in sealing ordinances. So Elisha may have had them, but Elisha could not pass them on in the same degree that Elijah could. Um, and they are the keys that are can seal one up to exaltation. Joseph says to have the power over one's calling and election made sure. Um, so this mantle that falls from Elijah and is caught by Elisha, I believe, is where we get the whole idea of the mantle of the calling going from one person to the next. And this is the symbol of it um, here. And of course, it was the Lord's will, not... Elijah keeps saying, you don't need to follow me. I don't know anything about this, uh, what's going to happen. But he says, I want to follow you and I want a double portion. And Elijah says, it's up to God whether you're going to see me. It's not up to me. I, I'm just a servant of God. You know, I'm not the one making these miracles happen. But, of course, that double portion um, sounds like he might be a little um, greedy, but I don't think that's what it really means. I, he's not saying, can I have twice as much power and authority as you had? I think as one of the sons of the prophet, he's asking if he can be the heir. 
Because do you remember in the law of Moses, the law of inheritance divided up the property amongst all the sons? Yeah. Yeah. And the oldest always got two times because the oldest had the responsibility to take care of their aging parents. And the oldest had the responsibility to take care of the other, the rest of the family. You know, they, they, they had to have the double portion to take care of their larger job. So by Elisha asking for the double portion, I think he's asking for the inheritance to be the, the heir. But he's already been anointed the heir back in, what was it, First Kings chapter 19, I think. The Lord tells him to anoint um, Elisha as his heir. So I think it was all understood, but Elijah doesn't want to presume anything. It's up to the Lord, not up to him. And sure enough, Elisha does see the mantle fall. And I, for one, have felt and have seen and believe that the mantle of God is very real as we try to magnify our callings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, um, I've had a handful of callings where this has been really stark. Missions, my mission experience especially. Oh, so tell me was, about it. Yeah, so when I was set apart as a missionary, so in my living room and my family was sitting across me, uh, from me. And um, I just remember opening my eyes up after being set apart and they just seemed different, mm. right? They, I mm. saw them differently, right? Um, and of course, you know, over the course of my mission, the ability to focus, a lot of the different things I struggle with, I didn't wow. um, on a number of things. And the ability to perform my calling was absolutely there. Uh, other callings as well. And it's a, a gift well. from God. The yeah. mantle is a gift from God. It I've was, seen it. Yeah. It's just a stark difference for me. Now, I still struggle mm. in some things. Uh, you know, um, don't get me wrong. It wasn't sort of a free pass here. <laughs> I can understand why Elijah's asking for double portions. Like, I need I need some help to try to do this calling you've given me, right? You know, I've seen the mantle come when I've um, suffered. One of the problems I've had with um, my, my chemotherapy and radiation and surgeries is that my voice doesn't last as long. And so when I've prayed and asked, can I just have voice to magnify my calling? Can I just have voice to teach today or to testify of thee? Or um, my voice is extended and that I have no voice for small talk and, and garbage talk, you know, but if I, if I save it for testifying, I find that the Lord magnifies it like with a microphone. It's, I, I, and I've seen it in my husband with his callings. It's really a beautiful gift. It's an amazing thing. Just the mental clarity and I guess the, the, the attunement to the spirit to perform the duties I've been asked to do is, is He wants us to clear. be stronger when we're carrying out his work. I see us all marching on, on Christ's team. You know, we're, we're playing his ball and he wants to give us uniforms of protection and uniforms that can make us better at our calling. And if we're all trying to wear... Holiness to the Lord. If we all have Christ on our jerseys, we're on his team. We're going to, we're going to be stronger. These jerseys really do carry power. Yeah. It's a beautiful image. I love it. I see some more symbolism here, um, in the mantle being used to divide the river Jordan. Oh, isn't that, tell me more. I love it. So this was, this goes back to Joshua. A little bit of Moses, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Elisha is the one who opens it as they walk through with the um, Ark of the Covenant. And so, you know, and another translated being Moses, with the right? Mantle. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Joshua, and then also, I mean, the symbolism we talked about last week was uh, Elijah with John the Baptist too. Right? Yes. And this is a place where. Um, well, don't you like it too that he that he takes the mantle and or the 
robe, whatever, and he and he slap he smacks the water with it. You know, yeah. he and, the, and so the two hundred verse eight, right? Yeah, and they were divided hither and thither, and so they went over on dry ground. I have to also think of the importance of temple clothing at this time too, as we're talking about mm. sacred clothing having sacred powers. And um, that only works when we keep our covenants, that only works when we are honoring our God, because it's not our power. It's all God's power. But the Lord gives us protection and extra strength and power in the clothing that we receive in the temple as well, if we honor it and wear it night and day and day and night. I agree. So what's, what's Elijah get up to after this amazing setting apart? And losing his mentor to the Lord. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The, the way that the book is organized, they do record twice as many miracles. And so the first miracles just start falling right out. Um, not only does he strike the water in chapter 2, verse 14, um, but he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Um, just like Christ's first miracle was also dealing with water. And you had mentioned earlier, Christ's miracles about calming the seas and uh, those kind of things. Um, But um, the sons of the prophets are waiting for him right over there in Jericho. So he just crosses across the Jordan and that first big city there, um, Elisha picks up that mantle and um, some people are, are, you know, a little concerned about his power and authority. It sounds like, Um, and they, they tease him about it. That's in verse 23. But in 21, he does a second miracle, and um, it's again with water, which I just cannot think more about Christ being the living water, because it sounds like they've got something in their water that um, is, is too salty or something. I don't know, but it's, it's killing the ground, and um, it's, it's causing death. And then Elijah sprinkles some salt in it, and it's healed. Some mm. translations even use this instead of barren land as barren women, that it was causing miscarriages. Mm. But um, only, only I read about 25 translations of this. <laughs> I think about one has it that way. Everybody else talks about a barren land, but it's, it's healed. I also think it's significant that it was salt. Do you remember right. salt was very, very precious, but also salt was used as a sign of the covenant in the sacrifices. Every sacrifice, right. according to the law of Moses, the book of Leviticus, has to be sprinkled with salt. It's a preservative. And so um, we find healing in these images. And Christ asks us when he comes to, through his ministry to be the salt of the earth, to be the representatives of the covenant. And um, the healing can come through Christ's covenant. And he is the living water. Oh, it's just so powerful. I just, the, if we can just look at the Old Testament stories a little bit deeper to see these types of Christ. Um, Elisha is a great type of Christ. But after this, so he's had two miracles now, and it sounds like there's a gang of teenagers. King James calls them children, but that's, that's, that's not quite right. If you look at the words a little more accurately in, in um, a good Hebrew Bible, or it's the Septuagint virgin, version, but they start calling him a bald head. And in contrast to Elijah, who was a hairy man, I assume they're they're doing a little bit of comparison that way, or maybe are they referring to God is not your head? Are they referring to the, you know, is bald head referring to the fact that you do not have authority on your head? Do you remember a priest had to always wear a, um, 
some sort of a, a they call it a bonnet in the King James translation, but there's some sort of a cap that is worn on their head as, as well as the white tunic and the sash. And by calling him a bald head, is he questioning his authority as well? It makes sense in context. Not he. There's 42 yeah, there's of them. I mean, it's a yeah, whole mob. So, it's a so whole gang. Youth, right? To me, I and see gang, this gang coming gang after youth. him. I don't think that that's out of the realm of, of plausibility that you have a bunch of people mocking him. Elijah's, uh, sorry, yeah, Elijah's gone. And so and, and who think, are you that we should listen? Yeah, this seems yeah. to be... Because it, it's such a crazy story, but even in the New Testament, the book of Jude refers to it. So it may have been there. It may have yeah. been It may have been part of the text. At least it was part of the text by the time of the New Testament. Um, but it says that he calls out two she-bears, and they don't—it doesn't say they kill the 42, but they do tear them, or whatever word, maul, lacerate. There's lots of different translations of it. Um, so— I see it in part as those who reject the prophets um, will receive the punishment of the Lord. Um, and they're not killed, though. They're just wounded. And may we learn from our lessons um, when we fight against the prophets. And, he, and then it says he goes up to Mount Carmel. He goes back up to where um, Elijah was fighting the priests of Baal right. a few chapters ago back in First Kings chapter 18. Yeah, I, I see that symbolism quite well with, of course, the, you know, the, the Carmel and the fight against um, Baal, Baal mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how I see this yeah. as well. Um, chapter 3, um, I guess, moves on with the next king, Jehoram, who's also a son of Ahab. And... Um, it talks about his reign, but he's also a, a bad guy. I just feel like it, we don't even need to. Every single king in the northern tribe um, was wicked at, at most of their lives. So it's tragic. We have a, few, a couple of really good ones down south. But um, it looks like um, at this time that they make some sort of an alliance. Is that is that what you're reading into this? There's an alliance of these allies mm -hmm. and the king of Israel, King Jehoram, who's this wicked son of, of Ahab, um, wants to make an alliance with Judah's king, King Jehoshaphat, to go against Moab. Because Moab has been a vassal since the time of David. I don't, do you remember that Moabites are from Abraham's wife, Keturah? So they're distant, distant, distant relatives. Um, but they've been a vassal state since King David. So 150, 200, close to 200 years now, you know, we're... Um, we're about 850 BC during the time of Elisha's, give or take 20 years on either side. And so um, they've been a vassal state for 150, 200 years, and they get mad and they rebel. And so these kings join forces and they're going to go through the land of Edom and want the Edomites to also join in so that there'll be three against one. And they call on Eli. They, I just love this fact that... Um, the wonderful king of Judah, who is a good man, says, well, don't you think we should ask the prophet? I mean, why are we going to battle without the prophet's direction? We are not. We're people of peace. We shouldn't be doing this. And he said, you know, the son of Ahab says, yeah, I guess. Go ahead. I don't care. Whatever. You know, <laughs> and then, then Elijah comes. I mean, look at look at this um, in chapter three. He says, 
oh, I am disgusted to even be in the presence of a son of Ahab. You know, if it weren't for the king of Judah, I wouldn't even be here talking to you. But yes, everything's going to turn out just fine. You're going to be able to conquer and we can get rid of some of the other people. And I want you to dig these um, trenches here and they're going to be filled with water and the Moabites are going to look at it and it's going to look like blood and and you're going to be just fine. Just put forth some effort and, and the Lord will fight your battles. But it is fascinating to me over and over and over again in the Old Testament, when the Lord fights the battles, no one is killed on his side. You know, it just reminds me of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. You know, if we're doing it the Lord's way, if we're defensive warfare and we allow him to fight our battles, he fights them with rain, with rumors, with storms. I mean, and I guess we saw that even in Zion's camp, didn't we? That's right. I was, I was thinking about Zion's camp through this thing. You know, the Lord will fight your battles. Yeah. Um, so absolutely what I thought so of. So that one ends without any, with the miracle of the Lord um, scaring away the Moabites and their rebellion. And they, once again, they have to go back and, and pay their taxes. Um, but again, it said, you know, there's always this problem of, of, of rain. And in the, in the King James version, it says there's no rain. But when I read Josephus, he says there was an abundance of rain that that night that filled the ditches. So we'll find out when we get the full record. I'm really grateful that we have um, the hope of a more full record. I really feel like the Joseph Smith translation is thorough in Genesis chapter 1 through 24, but it is very sparse in the rest of the Old Testament. Very, very sparse. And only on rare occasion do we have changes. This is not the way the text really originally read. Um, the Joseph Smith translation, I think the Lord inspired him to change what he needed to know doctrinally at that time. And that's why we had so many changes in those first 24 chapters of Genesis and not much the rest of the Old Testament. But the miracles start again in chapter 4. And um, these, this, um, this widow says that she her husband was um, one of the sons of the prophets. So Elisha would have known her, I assume. And both Josephus and the rabbis say, oh, she wasn't just a widow. She was the widow of um, Obadiah or a servant who, who hid the hundred prophets, who actually helped Elijah save um, these prophets from wicked Ahab. Um, but whoever, whoever she was, um, her husband was a servant of the Lord and um, he had been killed. I don't know if it was through Ahab or whatever, but now the creditors have come after her and said, um, you've got all these debts. And the reason why Josephus says it was the man who hid the hundred prophets is because he has a whole bunch of debts because he had to feed these hundred prophets. And so she comes to Elisha and says, they're taking my kids. They're taking my two sons. And I don't know what to do about it. And I just love this story here in second Kings chapter four, verse two, um, she goes to the prophet to figure out an answer. You know, she goes to the, the source of living water. She goes to the word of God and she says, what shall I do? And he says, tell me what do you have in your house? So she goes to the right place. Right. And then he asks her to be responsible. Tell me what you've got. And she says, I've got a little bit of oil and I, I've got, a, I, got, I got a pot one pot. Yeah, I've got a little bit of pot. <laughs> Nothing you know. but a pot of oil. And yeah. then God magnifies what she has, just as God magnify what we consecrate to him. 
And, you know, he gives her this great advice, you know, go borrow a whole bunch of pots and don't make it a few. Get as many dishes as you can. And then I love this. Do you see in verse four, he says, shut the door behind you. Mm. You and your sons, I see this becoming a sacred space and it's their home and a miracle is about to happen. And he's, they're shutting out the wickedness of the world. They're shutting out the creditors. The, the door is being shut on um, those who doubt the prophet. But then she begins pouring and pouring and pouring and fills every vessel and she's ready to pour more. And she says, and it's all coming out of, interestingly, her vessel. Mm. Symbolically, this is just so powerful. I love this with the with the parable of the virgins. To uh, I mean, how many other oil you know parables well, are and there? Isn't it even better when we look at it that way? Because oil is the anointed one. We use so this is like Christ's anointing will last for all. Christ's anointing can be shared with everybody because there's going to be plenty of it if we can just shut our door on the ways of the world consecrate what we have to him and Christ's gifts and bounty. You know, it's nice to look at this in light of Gethsemane, of his atoning sacrifice, because Gethsemane means olive press. So this oil coming from the olive press is, um, no matter what your sins are, Gethsemane can cover them. No matter what you've done wrong, um, Gethsemane the, the Savior's, Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice can cover them. There is enough oil to cover, and there is enough oil for exaltation, to be anointed, to become his um, heirs. It's just fabulous imagery. I love this idea, just within context of the, the you know, parable of the virgins um, and the oil, that she spent a lifetime storing her oil, right? This, this spiritual oil, mm. you know, she's... She has been the wife she's of been, a she's been son faithful. of the prophet. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. she's raising sons who... And she goes right to the prophet. You're right. Her whole life. Yeah. That's that's a great image. Um, and then he says in verse 7, this is, this is back to Elisha, now go sell the oil and pay your debt, and then you and your sons can live on the remainder. And I presume once her sons grow up, they can... Um, um, also be helping support her, and I'm sure that they will. But this is all just in this northern area of of Israel. Geographically, the next miracle is just southwest of the Sea of Galilee, just almost due south of um, Nazareth, just right off the Jezreel Valley in this little area where these two live. And it's another um, miracle of a woman. We've got two miracles with women right next to each other. Um, do you remember the wonderful Shunammite woman? There's a little village called Shunam there on one of the mountains. This is verse eight. A prominent woman who had lived there persuaded him, Elisha, to have a meal. You know, she recognized him as a man of God. She saw him walking down the dusty path and said, come in, have a glass. No, 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 I'm busy. I've got to meet. Nope, nope, nope. You need to come in and have a meal and a rest. I, I can, I've got an extra bed, bedroom for you. And then this wonderful woman says to her husband, please, let's make a small room upstairs. And if you look at the um, archaeological finds of these old houses, they, they used to actually sleep on their rooftops and they'd just use branches, palm trees, whatever, to be a little awning for shade or whatever. And then usually that, that was their spare room. That, so you could access it from the outside stairwell and 
there'd be a place for a mat and a, a light or something so that he could come and go at his leisure. And um, it sounded like she was quite, they were quite a wealthy, but I, I just love the fact that um, she's able to influence her husband. She has good ideas. He listens, he acts on them. They work together as a team and they're able to bless um, a prophet, a holy, a holy man. And whether we're married or not, out of small and simple things preceded that, which is great. I feel like this is this story is just one of those. And I also love as we continue down um, in a couple of verses that Elisha um, really wants to th- say thank you deeply, and so he asks the servant, "What can we do for her?" And I just see God. I, I, I guess that should be my question: What can I do for you? What can I? But the prophet is saying, "What can we do for you?" And um, the servant says, you know, she's got everything she needs except a baby. She's barren. Her husband's an old man and they, they don't have kids. And Elisha makes the great prophecy that she was dearly, dearly hoping for. And, and she's, she really chides him. She's a strong woman. She says, don't you test me. I mean, don't, did you do like that? don't you fool me. You know, I don't want to be promised something that I want so deeply that I can hardly stand. You know, I don't want to even come close to that. And um, I don't think that's what she did it either. Yeah, right? I don't think she, so either. She wasn't hoping for some. Um, well, and, and then he says to her immediately in verse 16, at this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. And the boy grows up. You skip down to verse 18. The child grew. In fact, he's old enough that one day he's out with his father, with the reapers, And all of a sudden, his head starts aching. Do you see that? Verse 19, my head, my head. And his father told the servant, carry him to his mother. And um, you know the story. When they had taken him, this is verse 20. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon and then died. I just love what she does next. She doesn't go out to the field to talk to her husband. You know, she tells that servant, you get me a donkey. And this is a long, I shouldn't say long way, but it's between 15 and 30 miles up to Mount Carmel. If, if that's where they are, if, if, if I understand the geography and I, and I may not, you know, maybe it's only 10 miles, but the bottom line is she's got to take a donkey. And she says, you do not slacken the speed, go as fast as you can. And if, if it's too, if I'm going to fall off, I'll let you know, you know, but I want you to ride as fast as you can. And as soon as they get there, you know, the servant greets her down at the bottom of the hill. Oh, hello. Nice to see you, Sister Schumann. Well, no, (laughs) she says, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. I want to see Elisha. Don't stop me. You know, she just takes a beeline right for the prophet. And he says, oh, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that when she, she tells him the story and in, um, he says, I'll send my servant and he can take my staff and there'll be healing, you know, and she just won't have anything with it. She is such a strong woman. Look at, look at verse 30. Can you read that? Verse 30? Yeah. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. <laughs> so she says, and it reminds me a little bit. Do you remember Elisha told Elijah, I will not leave thee. And now she's doing the same thing to him. So. He gets up and goes. And um, when um, verse 32, you know, they get to the house and Elisha sees the little boy dead. And he again went in and shut the door. There's, there's a need for private sacred time. And I love that the first thing he does, I'm clear down in verse 33 now, he prays. He asks the Lord, you know, is this thy will? Can I ask for this little boy that thou promised to be healed. 
And I don't know about you, but it sort of sounds like there's some sort of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation going on a couple times here. Um, I know that there are certain illnesses, um, the Strokes Adams disease that it sounds like, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, um, the child it comes back to life. And it says in verse 37 that the mother came in and fell at his feet, fell at Elisha's feet and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son. So her heart is always, always there. I started out by telling you geographically where this was, that it's on this little mountain southwest of the, of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Just on the other side of the mountain, it's, it's the same hill, the same hill is a little town of Nain. And Luke 4 describes Christ or Jesus raising a, the widow of Nain's only son, mm. a, young, a young man who had also died. So I feel like Elisha is really um, a type of Christ in these verses here when we look at these chapters. It's just powerful. It's just beautiful. And we go to another miracle and another miracle. I don't know how many of these you want to hit, but there's so many. There's more poison in the stew. The sons of the prophets are gathering the um, gourds outside, and sure enough, it poisons everybody. Yeah. And I want to talk about Naaman in the next chapter. Okay, let's let's skip time. ahead. We'll skip the um, the the stew. There's so many. And, right? There's a yeah, bunch of yeah. Them. Well, I did want to hit just one more about the barley loaves because in Second Kings chapter four, before we move on to chapter five, Second Kings four forty two, these barley loaves um, are brought to the sons of the prophet, brought to the prophet and his his disciples as the first fruits. And I thought those were supposed to go up to the temple. The temple's still in Shiloh at this time. It's quite a ways north, days, days, and days north, and yet they're bringing the food here, twenty loaves, to our dear prophet, and. Um, he says, oh, let's feed these hundred sons of the prophets right here. And the servant says, how? This is verse 43. How am I to set 20 loaves before 100 men? You know, and he says, don't worry. There'll be some leftovers too. And it just parallels again yeah. the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason why I wanted to do that one is because the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's in all four gospels. There was a prophecy that Christ would bring back manna. And so I see Elisha here preparing you know, this, this miracle of feeding many, many, many with a, with a little bit is repeated. But our savior, of course, feeds us spiritually. You know, the loaves and the fishes is not what he was trying to do. As he says, I want you to drink my blood and eat my flesh spiritually. I want you to receive the atonement in your life. Um, but poor, poor Naaman, this is such a great story. Have you ever studied leprosy? I know I'm the one with the medical background, not you, but have you ever read anything about it? Not much. Oh, it's just horrific. We call it Hansen's disease now. But in the Old and New Testament, they often call lots of skin diseases leprosy. They just, it's sort of a generic term, sort of like a migraine. You know, it's not a, a, a specific, um, may, may not have been Hansen's disease, but Hansen's disease after it's just these little, you know, welts on your skin and your skin starts falling off. Then it starts attacking the bones and the bones start falling off in each of your knuckles will go and it attacks your hands and your feet and your legs and your arms until you are just a stump of a person. It's just tragic. It's horrific, a horrific, painful, torturous way to die. Um, and that's why this very important military man um, is willing to do anything um, to get some help. But again, in this story, we have two servants who step up Speak up, even though they're little lowly people, 
It's the meek and the humble that speak up and the, then the nobles who listen to them who learn. But this first little girl who speaks up to the to the wife, I'm really touched. She's, she her she is taken as a um, as a servant child, you know. So she's probably a captive. She's probably been taken captive over to Syria, and she says, "Oh, I'm sorry that he has Syri- too bad. It would to God that he were in <laughs> in Israel and the prophet could heal him. If you were only in Israel, we have a man who can do healings." And then the second servant, you know, is. Um, is Nahum's servant, but Nahum's wife listens to the little girl and then Nahum listens. And did you see that list in chapter five, verse five of all the things he takes? 10 talents of silver, 60,000 pieces of gold, 10 changes of clothing. I mean, this is an enormous amount of money that he's carrying here. Um, I looked up talent. I don't know if it's right or not, but it appears to me that this is about $6,000 um, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to um, put prices on ancient measurements, but it's a it's a, an enormous amount of 6,000 pieces of gold, you know. But what happens to poor Naaman once he arrives? How does Elisha treat him? Yeah, I, <laughs> I love this story, um, especially this part of it. Um, he he shows up and he's um, effectively not given audience. And this is the this is the captain of the hosts of yeah, Syria, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. This is this is this the, is no person that you aren't being kind to and bowing to and saying, "What can I do to right. help?" He's or used to, to the pleasantries, uh-huh. right? He's uh-huh. used to Elijah. Uh, Elijah doesn't even see him. No, nope. right? Just he just sends a servant. a servant, go dip in the water. And I have never seen the Jordan clear. The Jordan is always muddy. It's always brown because the the ground is not or the bottom of it is not. Um, Rock, you know, it's 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 dirt. It's silt. Yeah. It's silt. It's silt, and it's always money. Are you kidding? You want me to get in this thing? But he listens. I and I find myself doing the same thing. If God asked you to do something difficult, would you do it? We saw this at the time of Moses too, didn't we? When he said, "Look at the bronze serpent and live," and haven't we seen this under our own, our own prophet? When he's asked to do something very simple, wear a mask at church. Keep going to the temple. Just wear a mask. Get vaccinated. And and yet people say, oh, it's political. It's political. This is a very political time. This is a very political issue. And he's still saying, do something simple. But to me, that's not the whole story. The, the story is what happens next. Yeah. So he's healed, right? Yeah, he's, so he's completely healed. Completely he humbles healed. himself. It's a matter. We are healed when we humble ourselves and listen to the servants of God. For me, this always gets back to, is it? The way you want to hear the message more important than the message. Because <laughs> the message is, like, yeah, if you want to be healed, do this. That, that information is, is what saves him. But, uh, and this is what, I think this is the wisdom of his servants. Like, you know, if, if it would have been different, would you have done it? It's like, this is. And I'm sure there are many people who would love to be healed, who the Lord says, not yet. Or let's work on your spiritual healing. Or let's use this trial to have you grow your faith. Or let's. Let's not let, let's have you endure this thorn in your side, Paul or John the Baptist or Peter or Joseph Smith or Paul. You know, I mean, you have to endure hard things. Um, but the the amazing thing to me is when Naaman comes to Elisha and says, you know, he's he's one of these lepers who are healed who goes back. And and he's not seen Elisha yet. He's talked to the servant, but he goes back and says, take a blessing. I, I, I would love to thank you for this. Please, I, I prepared these things. Take a blessing. 
of thy servant. And he says, nope, I am not taking a dime for this. This is the power of God. I am not going to be made wealthy off of God's power. And then this servant of Elisha, who has been with Elisha for through so many miracles, um, he saw the raising of the dead. You know, right. he was the servant. And yet he is the one, Jehazia, is, um, has greed. And it is not time to receive money. And yet he runs back and says, oh, um, the prophet just changed his mind. Can we please have two changes of clothing and uh, 2,000 talents of silver maybe? And, of course, um, the Lord tells the prophet about it. And he says, is this a time to receive money because of God's miracles? This is priestcraft. You know, this is horrific examples in the Book of Mormon. But and he I, did it in his name. They're doing it in the name of the prophet, which is even worse, isn't it? He is abusing just as like as if we were speaking ill of the Lord's servant. So it's tragic. And, of course, Jehazia gets gets the leprosy of Naaman. Um, but we see Christ he, repeating, healing the lepers. And we see Christ teaching us over and over, even with Joseph Smith in the, in the golden plates, for four years. He wanted to get him, and he couldn't get him because he had to get rid of all of the thoughts of materialism. You know, why did Elisha refuse Naaman's gift is the same answer as to why um, Gehazia asked for it. It is, it is greed. It is Satan's first article of false faith. That's the, what Nively calls it. You can get anything in this world for money. It's that misallocation of what is important in life, and it's not money. It is the word of God, and may we hear it and repent. Next week, we get to jump into the time period of when the Book of Mormon starts. And That's right. So I'll see you to finish up Second Kings next week. Okay. Thank you. God bless you.